Jacob Kinberg, and you're listening to Salty Cinema. My guest today is producer David Jacobson. David was director of development at Laura Ziskin Productions for three years, where he worked on The Amazing Spider-Man and helped put together two Stand Up to Cancer specials. He also co-produced Lee Daniels' The Butler. David recently started his own production company, Required Reading, and produced a documentary with Nas called Shake the Dust. Here is my conversation with David Jacobson. Let's let's start with what the last couple of months have looked like for you. What what have you been what have you been yeah. doing lately? Uh, the last few months have been different uh, for me personally. I've been living over on the East Coast. I've been uh, based out of New York, and obviously I'm based here in LA with you uh, in Southern California for most of my life. But um, I've been over in uh, Jersey City, actually, with my two partners, Adam and Shauna. And the three of us have been uh, taking part in a startup screenwriting residency, which is... uh, How am I sounding here? No, that's fine. I'm just... I don't need to listen. Yeah, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'll start that sentence again, if you want. Um, So for the past three months, uh, my partners, Adam, Shauna, and I have been taking part in a screenwriting residency at a contemporary arts center over in Jersey City called Mana Contemporary. And that's been quite an experience. It's been great to be out of the LA grind, actually, and kind of push out of our comfort zones in a way and over on the over on the other coast. But it's also been really good um, to you know be away from distractions and be you know pretty particularly focused on a number of things this summer. And so So you are like workshopping something or you were helping with the yeah so it's it's an interesting story probably best just to start at the beginning we um you know i i have two producing partners adam schoberg who i went to school with and shauna winslow who's a a great friend and in the same social circles here in in la that we uh kind of all came together and figured that we had a shared set of values and wanted to be creating uh content together Mm -hmm. uh telling stories together and we formed required reading which is a production company that we all run together um last year and one of the first proper gigs we got um, believe it or not, it was not a film project, not a TV project. Um, it was producing Kanye West's live Madison Square Garden album release show and performance art piece that he did with Vanessa yeah. Beecroft. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, something that we. So how did how did you get that? Yeah. First of all, we had no business doing that. Let's be really clear. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was a unique situation where um, Kanye's team had been. Uh, looking for producers to help them pull that off. And um, eventually word got to Shauna through her Warner Brothers network. She was based at uh, Lynn Pictures, which is, of course, based at, at WB, um, that you know Kanye's team was looking for someone to help out with this project, and it was imminent. It was uh, about three and a half weeks out. And, um, you know, I'm sure they, they looked at all the usual suspects, you know, the types of people that produce Super Bowl halftime shows and uh, kind of those big live producers. Uh, but essentially, there was a very specific creative vision for that job. And the creative director, who's a close collaborator of Kanye's for years, is a woman named Vanessa Beecroft, who's a pretty well-renowned uh, Italian performance artist. And she wanted to create this live spectacle 
on the floor of Madison Square Garden with over 1,100 fully styled extras in this uh, production design scene. And, um, you know, perhaps in a panic, they ended up getting to us and, you know, hearing by way of reputation, uh, you know, based on, on the strength of Shauna's relationships, that we, you know, are great with talent and we're, we're pretty capable at translating a creative vision uh, at a cost and we can do it fast. And as a startup production company, we obviously jumped at the opportunity and, and said, hey, you know, where other people say there's only, you know, a few weeks to get this done, it's it's really setting yourself up for failure. We're like, there's literally no lose here for us because, um, you know, this is the type of thing we want to be doing. And, and We get out there, we, uh, you know, we end up just going through an excruciating uh, few weeks of pre-production and uh, you know, working to pull off this, this massive achievement, which ended up being the most viewed piece of performance art in history, wow. um, you know, both with the sold-out Madison Square Garden crowd and then being live-streamed to... Uh, cinemas all across the world and then live streamed in Times Square and of course on title to 20 million people. Wow. So it, it ended up being a really cool experience and uh, putting us in, in a very different network um, based over New York. And, and so wh what work had you guys done that they were basing hiring you? It on? had nothing to do with anyone's resume. Nothing. I mean, I had a little bit of live experience um, working with Stand Up to Cancer. So, you know, my first gig with Laura Ziskin uh, when we were based at Sony and I was working at, at Laura Ziskin Productions was the, uh, you know, the inaugural Stand Up to Cancer show, which is a multi-network telethon on, at the time, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And it's, um, you know, a live TV uh, fundraiser for accelerated cancer research. And that, of course, became a big um, powerful uh, TV fundraiser every two years. So I, did, I worked on that in 2008 and 2010 as an assistant to uh, to Laura and the other executive producers. Um, so I, I had a little bit of experience in the space, but certainly, once again, had no business, um, you know, on the floor of Madison Square Garden trying to pull off this this spectacle, um, much less in, in that kind of time frame or with those circumstances. But um, the, um, you know, the... Creative director Vanessa Beecroft. It, it, it was clear to that team that she needed a particular type of producer to help pull this off, um, and a group of producers that also could interface with the management um, and the brands and the people uh, that were pulling this off. So it was great. I mean, working closely with um, you know Kanye's team and his management um, was yeah, it was was amazing, and, and it was it was a huge challenge. Um, what what is what's Kanye like? He's the real deal. I mean, he, you know, the first day on the job after we kind of all put our hands in the middle and said, um, you know, we're going to do this thing for better, or for worse. Um, you know, we, we showed up at the studio where he was, uh, you know, mastering and finishing the album uh, way up in the valley in this obscure place. Uh, and, you know, we're sitting out at this big patio table in the back and it's surrounded by bodyguards and, you know, people rolling joints and hanging out, and it's just kind of a scene. And, uh, you know, kind of late morning, he rolls in and walks over and shakes everyone's hand and said, hey, hey, can you come with me for a second? I want to play you guys something. And, um, you know, we follow him into the into the mixing room, and he just plays the album start to finish, Life of Pablo, and continues to, you know, perform uh, 
in front of us every single track. <laughs> and it's such an intimate group of us. It's, you know, Adam and Sean and myself, Vanessa B. Croft, uh, our costume designer, uh, a couple other of his key creative collaborators, uh, an assistant or two. And then he literally, after playing the entirety of the album, went person by person around the room. And this is, you know, our like three on the job and asked us what we thought, oh, you know, of, of the album and of his poetry and, and <laughs> of his sound. And so it was, it was basically that kind of set the precedent for what, uh, you know, that job was. And, 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 he, and he really cares. Oh, like, oh he, what every, each individual person he, thinks. Like, he seems he, like... He cares the most, man. I mean, he... He's, he's as unique a creative as, as I've ever uh, been exposed to and, and worked with. Um, and, I mean, one, one of the, the takeaways that I found so genius about him, because there's a lot that lots of people can say about him. You know, there's lots of criticism that's lobbied against him. Some of it perhaps is legitimate. Some of it is definitely not. Um, and he gets praised, you know, uh, <clears throat> all over the place. Um, and you know is all of it deserved is is he you know is, is is he the greatest music artist of our generation uh maybe not um but what he did that was so brilliant in my mind was just how dedicated he was to his own craft and setting the bar so absurdly high for himself that he's mm -hmm. then forced to achieve and perform at that level consistently over and over and over again um that uh, it, it was just inspiring. So yeah. the, the man like is so ruthless with his own creative game, his own creative hustle that it's I don't think paralleled by anyone. Uh, so so what there. do you what do you say sitting in that room? <laughs> when oh, it's your man. turn. Were you were you like first person <laughs> line? No, I think I was second or third. Um, I mean, no no one's saying anything bad yeah, about anything. No, right I now. mean it's it's there, there was some intelligent commentary for sure. Most definitely was not coming out of my mouth. I was like, <laughs> I was just like, whoa, um, you know, your ears are ringing and you're feeling the just the vibe of, of that moment and soaking it all in. I think I said something to the effect of, um, you know, that album does have have an arc, a story that it takes you on. And I responded to, um, you know, the overall kind of rhythm of, of where he takes you and everything from the sounds that he's using to um, you know, just the emotions in, in, in each song throughout the album really takes you on a, on a journey, which is pretty cool to see. U Ultralight Beam is just yeah. a crazy it's good beyond. song. <laughs> yeah, it's another level. Yeah, yeah. So, anywho, getting back to New York. So, we, um, you know, we survived that ordeal. And in, in the process, we met a lot of interesting people, um, you know, some of whom were uh, these folks at Mana Contemporary. And they're actually a vendor of ours. Cause, you know, the show was, you know, kicking off New York Fashion Week. And so everything's booked out. All the hotels are booked out. All the stages are booked out. Um, a lot of your labor and, and trucking and whatnot is a little bit more difficult to find uh, in Manhattan. And, um, you know, the show's at MSG. So we're like, what the hell in, like, Midtown or, like, Soho, which is where we were, um, are we going to be able to utilize to, like, style and dress and feed and transpo you know, over a thousand people. And 
you know, so much of that job was learning on the fly, like what was and wasn't possible. And so we very quickly pivoted to looking for space in, in you know, across the river in Jersey City. And um, we ended up using this enormous warehouse space that MANA provided to uh, ultimately do all, all of our extra styling, which is super cool. And it was right across uh, the way from a dye house that we ended up using. We ended up buying over five tons of uh, denim that we hand distressed wow. and dyed and, and transported from LA to New York. So, um, so in this situation, yeah. the, all the ideas for what is going to happen, they've kind of been decided and you're logistically pulling it off or were you guys kind of a part of those discussions of w- what it was going to be? Um, you know, we were there to, to execute on a vision. Um, a lot of the times that means your job is to pull out the vision and to okay. help refine it or, you know, get, get answers where you need answers, you know? And, um, you know, there was a creative when we came in and the creative was super compelling. It was, you know, based off of this, uh, photograph of, uh, of a Rwandan refugee camp. Um, mm-hmm. and so we saw that image and it was our task to, you know, bring that to the floor. So, um, you know, we had answers and, and, for what we didn't have answers for, we had to get them. And, you know, a lot of it is just living within that creative tension of, mm-hmm. you know, both Kanye and Vanessa really being spontaneous, being creatively fresh all the time, um, feeling what they want in the moment and building an infrastructure that would be able to respond to that in real time. Mm-hmm. That's the job. And turning it on a dime, um, which is tough, you know? So, like, yeah. you know, nights before, you know, we're like, we are going to have to move all of these thousand plus bodies from here to here to here. And I need it to take, you know, 30 minutes instead of two hours. And you get that phone call. You just say, Oh shit. Like, how am I going to do that? Um, but yeah, you, you push through and, and, you know, make it happen. So, um, anyways, uh, manna was, was really intriguing to us by nature of who they were. You know, they're this, you know, industry-leading contemporary arts center right across the river from Manhattan. And it's got something like $4 billion worth of contemporary art, um, you know, hanging there. Uh, All sorts of rotating exhibitions that are super cool. Um, And they really have the desire to, you know, provide a context for multidisciplinary collaboration for all their artists. So all the painters and sculptors and dancers and photographers, they want to be talking and collaborating and they wanted filmmakers uh, to come participate as well. So they hit us up after the show and said, you know, if you guys are interested, we'd put you up for a few months to, um, to come out here and, you know, pilot this program. And we don't exactly know what it would look like, um, but, you know, we're, we're down to support you guys and, and give you some space to, to try that out. Um, it's, it's, I'm not exactly sure how much I should say on, on any of these things. I'm just generally being pretty positive and, and, <laughs> and candid. But, I mean, you know, both of those things were enormously difficult for an early company and for the three of us as partners and as producers and um you know there's some deep flaws with both experiences for sure and that's not in any way to um you know throw shade on 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 those two groups but um you know we've learned just so much about ourselves as creative people and as producers and as a company getting through those uh two experiences and you know with mana for instance it's like it's like yeah like 
we know a lot of what not to do next time if if we're gonna go attempt to launch a program in that way while at the same time being you know responsible creatives answering to ourselves as our own creative masters and um yeah so much of you know the kind of startup phase is finding that balance between like getting it done uh on your own terms and then also living in in the marketplace or with partners to um kind of move the ball forward with them you know and it, it's a lot trickier when they're prestigious and they're interesting and you know they're fancy so so does and this was the so this was a screenwriting thing that you guys were spearheading and running yeah and it was a two-month so it's like pilot and build a sundance labs for yourselves okay and here's an apartment in jersey city here's a big ass space in our super cool building and invite all your friends and get feedback on your work um sounds nice and you know we we realize how difficult that you know that can be to pull off um and essentially you know we we you know, everyone had to do kind of what was right for them. And so we ended up making it through the summer um, with some really strong material in hand. Um, and, and this is material for you guys to to produce. Yeah. That you're working with writers that you brought in to, to work on these different projects that you guys have. No. So what we what we ended up doing just by nature of how the, the summer shook out was really just focusing the three of us on workshopping and rewriting uh, our first scripted narrative project, okay. which is called The Falconer. Okay. And uh, it's, it's this incredible story that um, uh, my partner Adam found while he was over in Yemen uh, working on our, our documentary Shake the Dust, which is a breakdancing and hip hop doc uh, around the world. Um, but while he was in Yemen, he met this kid who was, um, you know, a Western Yemeni kid. He's the son of, you know, kind of American and it Italian NGO working parents, but was raised in Yemen his whole life. And he becomes best friends with this, um, this local boy named Khaled. And the two of them have all these incredible adventures working at the zoo. Uh, in old Sana'a, you know, the capital city of, of Yemen growing up. And what ended up happening in real life is is Khaled's sister got married off, which is very typical at a, at a young age, to a much, much older uh, abusive Yemeni man starts beating the shit out of her. And so what the boys did was start to uh, steal animals on the black market and sell them to pay for her bride price, all against the backdrop of the Arab Spring wow. popping up in the region. So it's, it's this incredible... Um, you know, adventure and friendship story in this, you know, often overlooked part of the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, we, we, we'd had a draft and we really wanted to get it right, um, before we came back and started to package it this fall. So that became pretty clear that that was going to be the only focus for the summer was to get that right. Um, and, and then also being, you know, outside of the LA bubble, we were able to focus on a lot of other stuff that we needed to get done. You know, we finished our, you know, our revised, you know, company overview materials, sales materials, our business plan. Uh, we shot a little documentary featurette on ourselves, mm. on the partnership that we can be taken out. And that's going to be a big part of our fall moving forward is, is shopping the, you know, the film fund materials that we're going to be doing because we're going to raise a little bit of money this fall and um, hopefully use a Falconer as, as the first film out of the gate. So you, you've worked on narrative films and documentaries I'm curious what you think about with something like the Falconer, what makes you say when you hear that story, this should be a narrative versus this should be a doc? This is a great question. Um, 
I mean, I I, th I think the you know the the muscles you're you're flexing um, you know can be s similar certainly, but but ultimately are they're they're just such different you know art forms and. Um, I, I think there's certain documentary subjects that just, you know, demand kind of a journalistic investigative, um, you know, flashlight approach of what's really going on here. And, you know, there's no need to do anything other than tell the truth in a pretty like one-to-one -one way between mm -hmm. the camera and, and the subject. Yeah. Um, maybe that's oversimplifying it a little bit, but you know, everything else we do is so much more complex. Um, and also has to be wildly entertaining and deeply truthful at the same time. So obviously the, you know, the whole format of, of scripted narrative films is something that we've always been striving for. If, if I could have made, you know, a dozen uh, scripted narrative films up to this point, I certainly would have, but they're so hard to get made. Um, documentaries are absolutely no less um, important or, nor are they less important to our business, but you know the last two we've been able to get off the ground have been a lot easier to to execute. You know, um, shake the dust was something that Adam had been bootstrapping on, self financing for years, it ended up being almost a seven year project for him. Mm. And uh, you know, I had the good fortune to hook up with him after I got back from the Butler, and uh, he had just moved back to L.A. and um, you know was basically able to help push that thing over the finish line relatively you know, late-ish in the game, um, even though I've been on it for several years. And, um, you know, the, the idea of, of cracking a story from the ground up and being able to infuse it with all of the ideas and, and values and truth that you want is, is just such a different process and something we're also really excited about. Cool. All right, let's, let's go back and get the, the bio history of David Jacobson. Oh, goodness. So you were born where? <laughs> I was hatched. I was, I was born here um, in Palos Verdes, California. I was actually born down the street in uh, at Torrance Memorial Hospital. We start from the very beginning, right. Jake. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm a South Bay kid. Um, Surfer. A bad one. I surfed while we were at school. Like yeah. go to Huntington and. Uh, you, did you? Grow up surfing a lot out here? No, no. I, I moved when I was in third grade. Um, I was a little rug rat that played a lot of baseball and football, and GI Joes, and baseball cards, and um, I was actually homeschooled, um, oh, wow. which which not everyone knows. Um, not that everyone would, <laughs> but I, um, easily the coolest homeschooled person I've ever talked to. Which which is <laughs> such a lie. Easily the biggest. <laughs> total dork that not everyone realizes um i uh yeah I, I grew up in you know here in southern california and was homeschooled for the most part except for um except for that year in third grade and um my dad ended up getting a, a you know job offer job uh, transfer whatever uh up to the seattle area and so I grew up most of um you know, most of my life and through middle school and high school until university up in Redmond, Washington, which is outside of Seattle. And it's, yeah, that's, that's really home. Um, just this incredible idyllic place to grow up and, um, you know, very different from LA. Uh, I don't know if you spent a ton of time up in Seattle, but I just love it there. And, um, you know, 
came time to make a decision on where to go to school and um yeah i i, I was all right in school and I, I did well at the you know the private uh christian middle school and high school that we went to and i was i was involved but uh i i wasn't super focused on anything other than you know doing what was kind of right in front of me or like you know what i dug which was sports and guitar and girls or whatever um i forgot that you did music too yeah, so yeah. i remember freshman year doing the music for our first film that we did together like that first did i really month. yeah you did the soundtrack like, <laughs> you did a nice little guitar all group. right you gotta <laughs> dig that up man I, pr- I probably could remember the riff if you played it for me um that's funny um but so did did you you grew up more thinking of yourself pursuing sports or was film and creative the creative side always there no i mean more than anything i've always been like a a literature geek um i'm totally product of my parents uh my dad is is you know a a big literature enthusiast and and that's one of the big gifts i've uh you know been given is to inherit his um you know, his appetite for, for ideas and, and, and great books and scripture, certainly, and theology and philosophy. And, um, and my mother, of course, is, is, is just an incredible and devoted uh, teacher. And she's been a, a teacher for the last, I don't even know how many years, 25, 6, 7 years. Um, I'm making that number up, but it's up there. And, you know, both homeschooling us and, and teaching in, in private schools and you know really emphasizing education and um you know kind of helping to point us uh both my brothers and i and my sister in uh into areas where we you know are likely to succeed and have intellectual freedom and and do well in so um so i don't know i i'm 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 kind of interested in way too much stuff and, and literature certainly was kind of my favorite thing i'm not a real math and science guy um, but I, I always was intrigued by film and by storytelling and, you know, filmmaking is of course the, you know, the, the great book of the last several centuries and it's what speaks to our culture, um, right now most directly. So that became super intriguing to me. And, you know, at the time when I was applying to school, I, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't this gnarly, like, you know, fully devoted jock in high school or anything. I was, um, I was mostly just a rascal, but I, I was applying to, to schools and my brother had gone to Claremont McKenna down in California to play college, uh, college football. And I thought, well, that sounds great. And I'm a, a pole vaulter and a football player. I can go down there and talk to the track coach and the football coach and, um, you know, see what they have for me. And I, I had a good meeting down there and they're like, yeah, for sure, man. Like, can't wait to see you next season. And after applying to only one school, super stupidly, um, you know, I remember being away on, on my senior trip, actually, and calling my dad and being like, uh, hey, did we get the letter yet? And he's like, I always remember this phone call. He goes, God has other plans for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it, it was then when I was like, oh, man. So I, I rushed back and... And applied, you know, pretty rapidly to, to three other schools, one of which was Biola. And I only applied to Biola kind of on a whim because uh, there there was like a college recruiting lunch where, you know, an admissions guy visits private schools that are likely to send their kids to that type of school. And it sounded interesting. And he was a film student and a Tory student 
at different points. And he was pitching the merits of Biola. And he's like, they have these two really cool programs, actually, which people are paying a lot of attention to. One is film, which I did for a while. The other is Tori. And I actually had to drop out of them because there's no way you can do them both at the same time. And towards the, the great books, uh, yeah. you know, super reading heavy program at the school. And, and so I said, great, I want to do that, but I want to do both at the same time. <laughs> so that, uh, that ended up being, you know, how I made it down to school, which is obviously the best possible thing. Um, I think that could have happened to me in my development at that time. So, mm. yeah. And so I, I loved Biola. That was like the greatest time ever for me was that was it the same experience for you or what were your four years like there i i adore my time there i i loved it and i think um i don't know for whatever reason um you know sometimes people expect me to answer differently when they <laughs> when they you know look back at our shenanigans or or, or whatever but no i i only had you know really fond memories of that place and it was small enough to where you could I don't want to say manipulate but you could you could handcraft an experience for yourself you could curate yeah. a program uh, of study and I was so supported by the you know the the you know by the school by the academics um, on what I wanted to take and it was it was a bizarre you know uh, combination of classes that ended up getting me through that school, but I ended up you know, graduating with a cinema and media arts degree mm -hmm. and a English minor. Almost got a business minor as well, but didn't really care about that. And um, studied abroad at Oxford, did a program at Berkeley, um, and then got them to swap out classes like when I needed it because I was like, "Yo, this is this is great. Everything's great, but like I don't want, I don't need to take accounting too or management information systems." or these things that are so non-core to, you know, what I'm about. And, and, um, were you, were you on the producing track? Yeah. Of the, of yeah. The film school? Yeah. So I was doing the, what they called media management media and, the, and they required, you know, these six or seven business classes and I took most of them, but like <clears throat> I got them essentially to like replace management information systems, which is, I think like a, a glorified version of like Excel and like <laughs> yeah. PowerPoint or something for like directing it for TV and film and then accounting too for advanced screenwriting. And the fact that they're willing to work with their students like that and you can walk in and have a one-to-one -one relationship and conversation really meant a lot to me. And, um, I met, you know, I met a handful of my, of my you know, best buddies there that are just like you, relationships you can have for the rest of your life. And, uh, you know, that you wouldn't trade for anything. So, so you graduate, what's, what's the first thing? Yeah. Do you, do you have a plan coming out of school? Like I know, I know the tra trajectory of how I'm going to get to where I want to be. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, whether it's like, you know, whether it's, it's having a degree of foresight about what I want or if it's just massive insecurity about what the future holds, I've always been pretty like intentional about Okay, I'm going to put myself in a good uh, position to be successful mm -hmm. you know, if I just do the following. And, and so that meant taking, um, you know, as many internships as I could that, that would 
I also just crave experience of all kind and you know, yeah. it kind of gets you into trouble at, at some point, but it, it's great because, you know, at that point I, you know, I'd gone from, um, you know, from school to school to school, you know, throughout, you know, that, that point in your life. And it's like, I, I just want to work. I just want to be out in the world and experience what people do, you know, for a living. And, um, so I, I started interning as early as, you know, summer after freshman year. And so I took a number of, of those and, you know, the, the, you know, last one was at uh, Sony Pictures based production company uh, with Laura Ziskin. And um, so I, and I, how did you get that? Um, I, I went out and found it and like, you know, many people that, that get their foot in the door, I, I got a hold of the UTA job list, which is still going around and, you know, um, was, was still pretty um, meaty back then in terms of real opportunities. Um, mostly if you're willing to work for free and um, it was great. So I stacked my classes on, I think two days a week and I would drive from, um, you know, La Mirada, which is almost down near Orange County um, up to my brother's place in, in West LA and crash on his couch the night before work three days a week and work at Sony three days a week and then come back and just, you know, just do FaceTime. And, you know, it's, it's, it, that's some of the most fun time. You know, I didn't have a dime to my name, but you're reading scripts every day. You're pitching your ideas back to the development executives. You're writing coverage reports. You're getting coffee. You're getting lunch. You're walking into people's offices and um, being exposed to that world and just kind of um, absorbing it um, and letting your intuition kind of guide you and, and fill up the tank of, of what's what and who's, who's real here. Um, was was super super valuable and um you know kind of on schedule almost um you know there was an opening at that company right when i graduated so i, I ended up getting an offer to come on board their staff and start to help out with their stand-up to cancer production and then uh, ultimately became laura ziskin's assistant and um you know just having a, a tremendous run with her yeah t talk about laura yeah so um you know, certainly the most defining uh, character and relationship um, in 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 my career up to this point, and certainly in my early career. Uh, you know, just my closest mentor and just good, 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 good friend uh, in the industry. And uh, I worked with Laura from 2008 until she passed away uh, from breast cancer in June of 2011, and. Um, you know, she just taught me so much about what it meant to be a producer and what it meant to, um, just to have such incredible integrity about how she produced and put together projects and how she fought and how she, um, refused to take no for an answer. Um, I've never been around someone so you know, tough as, and so gritty as, as she was and everything from, you know, a budget battle on amazing Spider-Man, um, to beating the networks into submission to give an hour of uninterrupted primetime, you know, airing to her, her startup, you know, cancer charity, uh, to of course facing the disease herself, uh, after so many years and, and just the respect and reputation that she had was, was so like off the charts. So it was, it was like, you know, just this amazing blessing, amazing gift to be working with her. And, um, yeah, just taught me a ton about also how people work and the world works and just being, 
able to see her and you know her her husband now husband Alvin Alvin Sargent um, and her daughter Julia see them really as family you know we got so close and and obviously um, being close with them through the sickness was was also a tremendous uh, thing to learn from um, you know these are people certainly that are, have a different background than I do a different face system than I do and I could not be more in sync with them just on a, on a human level and on um, a values level in terms of, of what they care about and why they do what they do. And um, so, yeah, we, you know, did, did the, the fact that you were a Christian, was that something you guys ever talked about or did it come up in any kind of way? Yeah, it did. It did. I think they saw it as charming and, then you know it's like didn't really register it wasn't a big deal mm-hmm. um you know they're intelligent um super intelligent super open super non-judgmental super like intellectually hungry people and um and we're also just a blast to be around and you know i just got to live out a version of um you know the values i wanted to express you know in a in a very real way and also in a way that was just a pleasure to do like it wasn't there was no like downside to being in that situation and just showing up over and over and over again and of course like you know i was i was a film dork at that point so i'm like stoked to get the call to like set up a skype call with uk at four in the morning and drive yeah. over to your house i was I was excited <laughs> yeah do you think there is um a particular skill set that goes along with being an assistant and did you feel like you possess that like the idea of being assistant where you're like oh I'll be good at that um I mean there probably is and honestly I probably don't have it that deeply (laughs) (laughs) I I again I really benefited from being paired up with her um you know God hooked me up because there is that nightmare scenario of being the assistant in Hollywood of some, you know, absolutely crazy person. Absolutely. <laughs> so many of, you know, of our peers coming out of film school were, were in that situation or, um, you know, so many people you meet and it's just like, dude, like, I am so sorry. I cannot relate. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think it just has to do with, with you know, how how your boss works and you got to play to that. And so with, with Laura, who was so intuitive and was such a gut person, um, that's kind of the way I am. I'm not super detail oriented, which is something an assistant should totally do well. (laughs) And I'm I'm not super analytical all the time. Um, but she and I like, you know, however, and for whatever reason, we really kind of riffed in the same way. And so I was able to, um, you know, see what she needed and how she needed it and play to the how. And, uh, you know, that did make a big difference. Did, did you make any horrible mistakes oh during your three years? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, uh, well, give us, give us, uh, one of the, one of the big ones. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there's a learning curve and, you know, I don't know when they're going to like fix the like phone system for Hollywood assistance for good and just make it a big touch screen where you can see everything and control everything in front of you. Um, but you know, you're, you're rolling calls, which is, you know, the process of, 
you know, you've got 20 calls on your call sheet in front of you that you need to return and you need to add lines and drop lines and conference lines and hold lines all simultaneously while shooting off email responses and follow up in real time to every conversation that's being had. And, you know, I remember one instance where, you know, I was, I was adding, you know, the line producer and another producer onto a call and then, you know, they had their pre-call and then I patched in the studio real quick and then, you know, I successfully dropped the studio after they had that call, but then she wanted to continue on the call with one producer, but not another, and I didn't drop everyone. And fortunately, and this is why you got to be, you know, <laughs> homies with everyone on your, on your crew, you know, a, uh, a, f- a friend of mine came running down the hallway, like, like 90 seconds later going, dude, 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 like our office is still on the call. Like, and I go, oh shit, and, you know, make sure to drop. So there, you know, there's little things like that or like, um, there was, there was a mix up with a car once. And of course, when, when you're executive, when your boss is traveling on the other side of the world and there's like a car pickup and it all has to be scheduled to a T and they're you know, tired and frustrated and spent. They don't want to be waiting for a car. And I remember once she, like, I, I, I had set everything up to just run kind of seamlessly. And then I was off doing something else. But of course, like the guy driving the car, like was behind schedule, but I was tracking him in real time. I connected them on their numbers and whatever. And then he ended up parking right behind the biggest pole he could find in the Dublin airport. (laughs) And I remember her saying, I'm going to fucking kill you. Which <laughs> <laughs> I just, I still think is the best thing ever. Um, and what, I, but were you, do you think you were ever in danger of losing the job? Was there ever? No, no. You, I mean, no matter what mistake you were going to make, it would, it would be. Oh, I'm fully capable of, of <laughs> blowing it and losing the job in its entirety. But she was amazing. And mm-hmm. we, you know, we worked, we worked really well together. And she was gracious all of the time. And, um, you yeah, know, there's, yeah, there's only a few instances where I was really worried about, um, that sort of thing. So, so, uh, through her, the Butler mm-hmm. comes up, mm-hmm. walk, walk us through that. I mean, this is your first, this is the first time you were accredited as a producer on a film, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, um, yeah, I mean the the last significant thing that she had optioned and and developed um, before she passed away was you know this extraordinary Washington Post article about excuse me about uh, an African American butler that you know started as as uh, someone that was washing dishes and worked his way all the way up to become chief usher, which um, in White House lingo is basically the COO or like the you know president of operations in a sense of the entire White House and just this incredible journey he had um, inside the White House, becoming super close with the first families and and seeing the sweep of civil rights through um, six presidencies, right? So, you know, the article kind of screamed just, you know, this amazing story at everyone. And there was this super exciting, um, you know, rights auction for it. And there were all sorts of other producers and directors that were trying to get a hold of it. And I, um, I remember Robert Zemeckis was pursuing it pretty heavily mm. and, you know, Laura's, uh, persuasiveness and her tenacity and, and her reputation, you know, ended up winning it for her and for Sony. And, um, that was actually, um, back in 2008. So the first year I was working there, it's one of the first things to come in. And it also just goes to show you how slow feature film development is uh, mm. inside the studio system. But we, you know, we developed a draft and, um, 
you know, got Danny Strong on board uh, to write this incredible script. Um, and, you know, it, it, it went through development and, and Sony loved it. And then they, you know, saw it as a little bit more tough and, you know, it, it had to be, um, you know, a much larger movie with a Denzel Washington type behind it. And uh, ultimately, when she passed away, um, it was in a position where despite having extraordinary talent on board with Lee Daniels directing and Oprah Winfrey and Danny's script, it, um, it wasn't a clear go. It wasn't something that the studio system, the traditional buyers saw as uh, an obvious movie they would want to make. And it was kind of the perfect combination of, you know, things that scare uh, studios. It was predominantly African-American. It was uh, historical drama. And, you know, it's, it's not, um, you know, four quadrant movie. It's, it's, it's a little bit more niche than that. And, you know, with the timing of everything that was going on with the election to what happened, um, after Laura's death, it became so, so, so clear that we just had to make this movie as kind of a, um, you know, the last dutiful service for her and as a victory lap of everything she stood for. So, um, you know, Pam Williams was, was Laura's partner and the president of our company. And, uh, I remember there was a night in December, uh, in 2011 where she and I were working late at our old offices on the Sony lot. And, um, we looked at one another and basically said like, I got your back if you got my back and we're, you know, we're losing our, our space here on the lot and let's go do this thing. Let's go teach ourselves the independent film business. And, um, it was just a roller coaster from there. And, you know, in the, on the studio world and with Spider-Man, which is the only other movie I'd worked on at that point, you know, you need something, you pick up the phone and, you know, you're just, you're painting with people, you're getting everyone to do this or communicate this or, um, you know, kind of work through all the layers of a bureaucracy involved with that type of show. And on this, you're teaching yourself how to do everything, you know, everything from your, your, you know, financial modeling to your, you know, distribution analysis to your publicity, your own legal, your own business affairs. And that education was so cool. It was so exciting. And so, you know, so you, even with already having all this talent attached, you you had to go through the process of still just finding the money like every independent film does. Obviously, you have a stacked deck because you already have that to show people, but you yeah. still have to find the people to, to take it to, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, we, we, you know, we had the clear benefit of working with a dream team in independent uh, film, right? So having all the kind of weight of her pedigree behind that and, and Pam's relationships and, and the, you know, the production company's name behind it. You know, we, we had CAA on board to, to package and uh, help put together the financing with us. We got Cassie and Elways who, you know, was the head of William Morris independent for a couple decades and holds every record for independent film sales. He came on board as a producer. We had Skylar Moore, who's you know, one of the biggest film finance attorneys and has done you know, almost every major big financial transaction out of China in recent years. Um, and we, you know, we, we got people just way smarter than us that could school us on how to put this thing together and really, you know, handhold us on, um, what it would take to get it done. But then of course you still need to go out and find all those individuals that make up your 30 plus million dollar budget. And, 
uh, then go do the fun part of putting together all the creative pieces. So, you know, putting together that, that, that cast and getting the script where it needed to be and uh, putting together your production plan. So, you know, between January of 2012 um, until June, you know, we were, we were running that process. We were learning how to kind of build the plane as we were flying it and, um, you know, just marathoning our way towards uh that start of production date um i i I remember because we had we had you know part of our financing coming out of the uk and i remember so many nights for a certain period where i just thought it would never end but i was also having so much fun uh but i would i would leave the sony lot in culver city and drive you know west down to the beach to venice which is where i was living at the time and i would leave the office around eight or nine o'clock or whatever it was i'd go home and make dinner and then at like 10.30 or 11, the emails would start coming in because the UK was awake and they'd start negotiating back on all these two flights. And so you'd, you know, you'd end up just doing these constant redlining of, of these distribution agreements, financing agreements back and forth and back and forth. And um, yeah, so that was, that was a big part of it. And then we got down to New Orleans where we, where we shot the thing and, and then had you know, a hell of a production too. We got hit by two different hurricanes and had um, you know, had to stop production. We had to raise a little bit more money in the middle of production to get it done right. And um, you know, we had these all these actors' schedules to meticulously navigate because part of our strategy on that was populating the cast with these brilliant, iconic uh, cameo roles that played the presidents and first ladies and uh, the rest of the butler staff. So um, yeah, it, it became. You know, super challenging, but the team on it obviously just executed brilliantly. Okay, let's get a, a little more detailed about when a produ- when producers talk about finding the money. Yeah. How? I mean, what? What do you? What? How are you finding the people who have the money? Like, sure. is there a, a a place you can go to to look at a list of <laughs> rich people, rich people. And then make calls? Is it just like? How are you finding the people? Yeah, I wish it was that easy. However, funnily enough, there are people whose jobs it is to maintain not just those lists, but, um, you know. So those lists exist. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's you know, your Rolodex, right? And especially the independent finance and packaging divisions at the major agencies. You know, those guys understand the models inside and out, and they maintain these super close relationships with, lots of wealthy people and lots of people that have had success um, as equity investors or gap investors or tax credit investors. And they know everyone that's lost their shirt too. And, and they can smell a, a you know, a viable package uh, versus something that's, you know, may not do well. And so, you know, it was, it was a process of kissing a lot of frogs and taking a ton of meetings Um and you know you and, who, and during that time while you're taking meetings how are you getting paid we weren't um i think i got down to my last like 71 dollars in my bank account right when the movie ultimately got bonded which is the independent equivalent of being greenlit okay and it was off to uh off to louisiana at that point but it was and then you could start paying yourself um yeah, it's also a little bit more complicated than that, but suffice okay. to say that like the tap slowly opened. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was it was is definitely lean and mean, and and everyone was you know we were, we were just in this like you know this like dead sprint against all odds. We will not take no for an answer. Like 
you know, push to get the thing made. So it really didn't matter. I could have, I could have defaulted on all my credit cards and we still would have ultimately pushed to that point. But I mean, to, to answer your question, which is, which is a really good one is you have your own networks that you develop, you know, friends of friends of friends, anyone in the world that, you know, either is capable of writing a check that you may want to introduce the concept of investing in a movie to, or that may know people that are capable of writing a check you know, those are the two people you want to talk to. And there's way too many in between people, way too many finders, way too many bottom feeders that really that's all they end up doing is, you know, trying to convince you on your movie that you've poured yourself into and that you've attached talent to that they're like, hey, I can bring you all this money. And they don't know shit. You know, they know a guy who might know a guy and they, you know, um, often misrepresent what they actually represent um, financially. So you, you learn how to navigate that a little bit better, but ultimately a lot of names are coming from the agencies. Uh, a lot of names are coming from your own uh, circles. And then obviously having Lee as, you know, just this incredible, um, you know, uh, attractive creative for, for so many different types of people. They all want to be involved with him. They want to be in business with him. And, and that mm-hmm. was a huge, that was the difference maker, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So when you guys are shooting it, I mean, you obviously you're pursuing, you know that you have a great story, but that's not a guaranteed success. Once it comes out, are you, were you very confident that it would be the hit that it was? Um, I want to say we were, yeah, sure. We were, we were, we were hopeful. We were optimistic. We were seeing what was being captured on set every day. I mean, the first day of shooting Jesse Williams, you know, this performance where it, it's it's kind of nonviolent uh, protest training um, at, at the university in, on the first day of shooting, and you had all the stunt actors down there and all the African-American actors down there, and it, it just got so real so fast, and everyone on the crew was sobbing by the end of day one. So it's like, it, it was always special to us. It was like deeply personal and special, but it everyone believed in that, film and and from the crew you know all the way up to to the cast and 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 the distributors so you know we always believed in it for the right reason so it's it's like did we know or hope that it would win number one in the box office for three weeks in a row no absolutely not we, we we wouldn't um have expected that necessarily but we we hoped it would do well but it also like yeah we needed it to gross a lot of money but it was it was about so much more than that it was just about getting the thing thing made getting it to see the light of day, getting it made in the fashion that it was made and, and doing right by Laura's, um, you know, uh, her vision. Um, so I know there were a lot of producers on that movie. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, what was the list? What oh, was gosh. the total? I, I think it's, I think it was 32. 32. Yeah. And, but do you, obviously, do you, do you want a credit by the way? I mean, it's like, sure. <laughs> obviously, of that 32, yeah, there are the couple of real people that made the movie happen, and then a lot of people that gave money, right? Yeah, yeah, without getting too in the weeds, this is just boring. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the people that you know brought significant financing to the table you know, have a certain type of credit, right. and, and other people that brought other assets to the table, um got a credit and then you know you may make a foreign sales deal or foreign sales advance deal and they'll get a credit or a tax credit deal they may get get a credit so um yeah but you know the core team was was not many of us so um 
it was not not too non-traditional. We did get in, in, in trouble with the PGA, and we were cited as an example of what not to resemble on the credits <laughs> list. But honestly, I mean, it's just indicative of how difficult it is to get that type of movie made. Right. Now, you look at what came after that, right? And you look at Selma, and you look at Straight Outta Compton, you look at Birth of a Nation, and it's so exciting. And I'm suspecting that those films may have not had to get out 32 producer credits because people can see that this is more than a viable um, type of movie that needs to get made. Yeah. So what did you see after it comes out? It's a huge success. What did, what did you see next for yourself or what did you think would come after that? for you? Oh man. Um, I didn't really know. And honestly, I should have taken a little bit more time to just chill and, and, um, and, you know, really just enjoy that moment because they're so rare. It's so hard to get a movie made. It's so hard to get a movie made and have it be successful like that. And, you know, the whole thing was such a hustle from, you know, the trauma of losing our, our, our boss and mentor. Um, so it was kind of nonstop until then. It really was. But I was, I was talking a lot with, um, with Dave Stewart, um, you know, famous British, uh, pop musician and producer and uh, artist and uh, of, of Eurythmics and, uh, you know, produced for Mick Jagger and Alison Krauss and Josh Stone and uh, Ringo Starr. Just incredible guy, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he, he's, he's also, he, he does so much more than just his music. He was, he was always kind of on the cutting edge of uh, technology um, over the last several decades and he's consulted for a lot of advertising agencies and he's just this like brilliant massive creative mind so anyways he had uh, a great relationship with Laura Ziskin and he had collaborated with her on the Stand Up to Cancer initiatives and written theme music for her and helped bring musical talent uh, to the stage and he and I really got on so after the butler he was um, he was one of the first people I was talking to and he was asking what I was up to and he was telling me about what he was up to and um, you know, it was all super exciting. And so I spent, uh, the next two and a half, three years working very closely with him. And I started off, um, you know, kind of consulting a little bit more tangential on, on some business development stuff and, and fundraising and some of his projects. And then, uh, started working full time for Dave Stewart Entertainment, uh, running their film and TV department. And, um, it, it was a blast. So we, you know, helped to format and, uh, package a show which sold to NBC, which is a music competition format that hopefully we'll be um, piloting soon and, and, and coming out later in the year. And, um, you know, we developed a number of scripts, um, one called Zombie Broadway, which we got a, a great, great screenwriter on board and started to pack his talent on. Um, and he also had just such a, a broad, um, you know, set of disciplines that he was involved with. So we also got involved in the tech startup side of things and started to look at um, kind of investments for him in technology and media properties that would affect the future of where the music industry is going, which is something he cares a lot about, about um, artists' rights and um, kind of retaining creative control and financial control as independent creatives. So uh, again, exposed me to a really cool really kind of rarefied level of of the creative class and a guy that is just so non-stop in his creativity and his ability to 
just be utterly fearless with his ideas and constantly not just challenging himself, but mandating from himself that he's outputting all the time. It's just like, whoa, like, I mean, if you would apply that to a director or a, or a, a screenwriter, it's like, I don't even know what that would look like. It'd be crazy. Probably like Tyler Perry. <laughs> <laughs> so coming full circle yeah. last year, you started your own company. Mm-hmm. What, what, made you why now or why then did sure. you decide to do that yeah yeah so yeah it, it kind of became the time after uh everything we had going on with shake the dust um dave stewart entertainment was um continuing to narrow their focus after you know pulling together a lot of the different pieces of the business and uh ended up being really focused on music um and they started to have a lot of success in developing their independent artists and, and getting a label off the ground and um, so, you know, without kind of a, a lot more money to help scale all of that, it became a good time to take a pivot and start to do my own thing. And it's also, a, you know, great way to continue to work with Dave and Dave Street Entertainment, um, but kind of more along the lines of, of how I can uh, build something that is mine and that I really care about. And so one of the first projects we did as a company was in partnership, a co-production with, with Dave Stewart. And that was a um, commercial campaign, a branding content campaign for Bose, actually. And so we shot this music video and um, uh, documentary footage for a new product that they were rolling out earlier this year. Um, but, you know, I've always wanted to own and operate and build something. And... Um, you know, it it is it's kind of always a good time to bail and start your own company. It's always kind of never a good time, and it it just it was the right moment, and we all just jumped at the same time. And I had enough um, history with with Adam and Shauna where we instinctively and intuitively and historically just knew that you know we could do something really special together. Um, and yeah, we all just kind of got to the, a similar point in our careers where it, it just became clear to all of us that the time was now. And it's actually on a life rights trip to Italy to visit this kid, Tareem Kennedy, who I spoke about earlier, who's yeah. the real life boy in the Falconer, um, you know, because of the civil war and the, you know, militant uprisings throughout Yemen, he and his family had to flee and they went back to his mother's home in Vicenza, in Northern Italy. And, so Adam and Shauna were going on a research trip to spend time with him. And um, this is, you know, in the fall of 2015. And I had been unwinding from the recent work I was doing with Dave. And I said, I'm buying a plane ticket. And, um, you know, we had no concrete plans to form a company or anything. We knew we wanted to make the Falconer together um, in whatever capacity or at whatever company. It was just the next thing we all cared about. Um, and you know, we got there and it just clicked and we actually had this like really like ridiculously like romantic evening out in Venice, which is only about a, I think a 45 minute drive or whatever from where we were staying. We had this night out on the city in Venice. We were super burnt out from writing and researching and just had a night out dinner out on the town. And we ended up like drinking a bottle of champagne that we bought out of these little gelato cups on this patch of grass in the middle of Venice on the canals. And we were sitting there and we're like, let's start something that is ours and that's based on only the set of values that we care about and is only all about 
movies that will last that are the types of movies we want to watch and types of movies we believe the world needs to to see and stories that they need to hear um and so that was it and so we all flew back and then it was how the hell do we start a company (laughs) (laughs) what what would you say to to the sentiment that movies are are if not already dead are soon to be dead and tv has become the thing that is what movies once once was or once were i'm not super worried probably because i'm not smart enough to be worried <laughs> i mean like there's so much like chatter and i i find a lot of the like tca analysis kind of humorous because um you know there's all this talk about Netflix taking over the world and what that might mean. There's talk about us, you know, us, us reaching the um, kind of peak of the TV bubble and then it's all going to burst and everyone's going to lose their work. Um, I don't know, man. Like, I think visual storytelling is what we're doing. I think we take a look at an idea, like your earlier question about documentaries, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like your thoughts are probably the exact same as mine. It depends on what story you're telling and you figure out what the best medium and format for that is and then you pour your soul into it and you try to get the damn thing made and you try to you know make sure that it makes money right and i think all that being said that obviously it's kind of a golden age of independent tv right now or what it could be called indie tv and um it's where a lot of the talent and the screenwriters that have a lot of vision and directors are going that have a lot of vision are going right now. I think that there's obviously this utter lack of creative freshness that's happening on the studio side of things, which is kind of the premise for why we got together because you see this big gap in the studio slates and uh, in their portfolios uh, for the types of movies they want to make and uh, the types of movies we believe that audiences want to see that we certainly want to see. And so we're happy to fill that gap with the types of stuff we want to do. Um, Are are you interested in getting in the TV space as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I think, well, I think features, first of all, mainstream studio features will continue to get more and more eventized. They'll become bigger and bigger. Um, and so, you know, you have, you know, these, these big budgets that are getting pushed higher and higher up and this lower budget films like the Blumhouse are getting pushed down, leaving this big middle class, which is where we want to operate. But, you know, for the big, the big tent poles, those will continue to resemble more of a Broadway spectacle where you're paying, you know, more and more per ticket. Maybe you're paying 40 or 50 or 60 bucks in the next five years, right? Wouldn't be surprising. And you have these 40 seats and whatever. Um, so that's fine. And by the way, I, I, I got into filmmaking because I wanted to entertain as well as to inspire. And I love popcorn movies. I love Star Wars. I love Indiana Jones. And I, there's nothing wrong with that business. Um, but it is, I, I think we're just creating new categories altogether because there's still going to be two hour great independent cinema that you can, whether it's on a DVD or in, or in a cinema, like, go watch and enjoy and just relish and soak up. And the economics are always fluctuating a little bit and you're going to respond to what the marketplace wants and you can figure out how to make money. But um, a, a, a feature film will, will will outlast those trends, I believe. Um, on the TV side of things, I think that, yeah, you got to be wicked sharp on how you, you penetrate that uh, all that you know noise right now. 
and it's a great time because everyone's budgets are super fat right now and they're soaking up a ton of content. You have groups like TNT and TBS that are trying to reinvent their you know, entire original side of things. You still have the Netflix behemoth spending tons on original content. I, I was having a conversation earlier today with a guy that's building a soundstage space in Atlanta and we're like, so who's talking to you? Like Marvel, obviously, Universal, obviously. He's like, um, he's like, you know, Netflix too. Like they're buying up soundstage space, not buying up, you know, taking out massive leases mm-hmm. um, in, in different parts of the States. And that's, that's surprising, but not surprising. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely something we're super interested in, but it's got to be right for the story.